0: Hear the word of God from 1 Kings chapters 2, 3, and 6, and Deuteronomy 17. When the time drew near for David to die, he gave a charge to Solomon, his son. I'm about to go the way of all the earth, he said, so be strong, act like a man, and observe what the Lord your God requires. Walk in obedience to him, and keep his decrees and commands, his laws and regulations as written in the law of Moses. Do this so that you may prosper in all you do and wherever you go, and that the Lord may keep his promise to you. If your descendants watch how they live, and if they walk faithfully before me with all their heart and soul, you will never fail to have a successor on the throne of Israel. Solomon made an alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and married his daughter, he brought her to the city of David until he finished building his palace in the temple of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. The people, however, were still sacrificing at the high places because the temple had not yet been built for the name of the Lord. Solomon showed his love for the Lord by walking according to the instructions given him by his father David, except that he offered sacrifices and burned incense on the high places. The foundation of the temple of the Lord was laid in the fourth year, in the month of Ziv. In the eleventh year, in the month of Bull, the eighth month, the temple was finished in all its details according to its specifications. He had spent seven years building it. It took Solomon 13 years, however, to complete the construction of his palace. And now to, to Deuteronomy chapter 17. When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you and have taken possession of it and settled in it, and you say, Let us set a king over us like all the nations around us. Be sure to appoint over you a king the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among your fellow Israelites. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not an Israelite. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself, Or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them, for the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives, or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good
1: morning, everyone. It's good to be here to worship together. I love being together on Sunday morning to worship our incredible body, our incredible God together in this body. I love doing it, I love, just, just love all of you. It always warms my heart to be able to come and to worship together and to, to bring the word together. So I love you guys, I love that we're doing this thing called the Christian life, spiritual maturity, advancing the kingdom, that it's not a solo project that we get the joy, the privilege of doing this together. So it's so good to be with you this morning. Today we're continuing in our series to the kings of Israel. Last week we saw David and his need and desire for the presence of God. Today we're moving from David onto his son, King Solomon. And King Solomon is an interesting character. Very quickly, what is King Solomon best known for? Anybody? Wisdom, that's right, he's best known for wisdom, he's this wise king. He's famous because he asked God for wisdom to lead his people and he was known to be a very wise person. So on that note, I have a few wisdom sayings I wanna share with you guys. Some wise sayings that might be a little humorous. Number one, anyone who doesn't think there are two sides to an argument is probably in one. Right, right? that's a wise statement. Number two, A bulldog can whip a skunk, but sometimes it's not worth it. Number three, before you criticize someone, walk a mile in his shoes. That way, if he gets angry, he'll be a mile away and barefoot. (laughs) I know. And this is my favorite wisdom statement. Man who walks in front of a car gets tired. Man who walks behind a car gets exhausted. That's a good one. <laughs> Tired? Oh, sure. In case you missed it, some of you are like, "Oh, <laughs> that's my favorite one." You can use that later. You're welcome, by the way. King Solomon is one of the more familiar kings of ancient Israel. He's the second son of David and Bathsheba. He expanded Israel's borders and economy more than any other king before him and any other king after him. This is all found in 1 Kings one through eleven. His name comes from the Hebrew word for peace, shalom. Peace, in fact, is one of the main themes Solomon is famous for. There are actually no major wars uh, for the majority of his reign. This time was looked on as a time of expansion and abundance by the Jewish people. When they actually think about the times of their glory days, you think about King David and King Solomon's reign. And David is the one who kind of accomplished it. King Solomon is the one who kind of reaped the benefits of it. And one would naturally think then that King Solomon had such abundance, such an incredible peaceful reign, that Solomon must have done everything right in the eyes of God for him to have such wealth and peace, right? You would think that, correct? And honestly, he started out decently. And you can be forgiven that you might think that way after reading about all his wealth and wisdom. The thing is, there's so much more to the story of Solomon, the story of Solomon is a great example of, of the, the, the subtleness found throughout the Bible. i got a little shake here. Is that okay? Instead of coming out and saying that like the main point of the text, the Bible presents you with an actual person and you have to interpret their lives. It isn't a made up story wrapped up in a short little moral lesson, it's a real person in history with all their flaws and qualities. And then we need to decide how to interpret this. How do we interpret the life of Solomon? What is the Bible writer's intention in talking about Solomon? So we see in our reading today, Solomon begins with David on his deathbed, giving Solomon a final charge to remain faithful to the covenant between God and Israel. And if you're reading chapter three, it looks like Solomon gets off to a great start. He asks God, God says, What do you want, Solomon? I'm going to bless you because of David. What do you want? And Solomon says this awesome answer. He says, God, will you make me wise so I can lead my people well? And that's a good answer. God's like, I like that answer. I'm going to give you wisdom. So you think, what a great start for Solomon's reign. But if you are like me and you're reading this passage, you might have overlooked something crucial found at the very beginning of chapter 3. And it says this, and put it on the screen. It says, Solomon made an alliance with Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and married his daughter easy to overlook, right? It's just kind of at the beginning, like, oh, just a statement of fact, easy to overlook. But he married, Pharaoh's, he married Pharaoh's daughter. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. We're talking about Egypt, right? The place that enslaved his people. The place that worships false gods, that Egypt, right? Is that a good idea? Does the narrator come out and say whether it's a good idea or bad? It doesn't. But we'll see more on this later on in Solomon's life. But just notice that. That's the part that's easy to overlook right away. It seems good. He's starting off really good. He's asking for wisdom, but we had that little bit put in there at the very beginning of chapter three. So King Solomon asked for wisdom and received it. And in this context, we hear the famous story about the two women and the baby. Do you guys remember that one? Anybody remember that story? There's two women out there. They're both claiming to be the mother of this baby. And it's an odd story, right? Because what is his answer? What is Solomon's answer? cut it in half. That does not seem like a wise answer. Like for me, I read that story and I'm like, what person would say yes to that? Like even if it wasn't your baby, no, don't cut the baby. I I just think that's weird. But it's a story to illustrate that it shows Solomon is a man of wisdom who can see beneath the surface. He can discern motives and character. And this was an attribute that was given to him so he can make good decisions, discern character of people, right? So Guys, I also want you to notice this though. I think this gift was shown to him to also show that how he could have been, he should have been wiser in his other decisions. I think this is a, almost an interplay of like, here's Solomon, and he's so wise, so wise, so wise. He can discern people, he can read people. How come he messed up so much? And you'll see this later on. Do you see what I'm saying? So here's this illustration, of, here's this picture of Solomon's wisdom. He's famous for it. And then chapter 4 comes a list of Solomon's officials, which I, makes sense. You have this expanding kingdom. You need a good team of government. And if I wanted to give a talk on business, I could be like, hey, guys, see, a leader needs good people around him and all this kind of stuff. But that's not what this is about. And if you're like me as you read this text, you can just skim over it and not really read it, and you can miss a lot. But chapter 4, verse 6, it says this. I'll put it on the screen. Ahishar, palace administrator... Adoniram, son of Abda, in charge of forced labor. Wait, what? Forced labor? Does that mean slave labor? Forced labor? I thought slavery was a thing of Israel's past. They left it behind in Egypt. No Israelite was ever to be subjected like that to not forced labor again, right? But here Solomon has someone in charge of all forced labor. Now the Hebrew word here is the same word used to describe Israel's enslavement to the Egyptians in Exodus. It's the same word. So it really is enslavement. It's not indentured servitude. It's actual enslavement. The same word used to where the Israelites were in Egypt. Okay? So there's slave labor happening in the midst of King Solomon's reign. There was not slave labor happening under David's reign. But he enlisted slave labor. Why? Maybe because he wanted the temple built. He also wanted a nice palace built. And he realized without slave labor these things might not be possible. He might have had good reasons. He might have said, hey, it's for the temple of God I'll have slave labor. Whatever the reason may be, he had forced labor. He had slave labor. But right next to this concept of slave labor comes this also idea of prosperity. There's eating and drinking, royal and exotic fare. There's opulence. It talks about his huge army, his huge treasury. He has horses, he has chariots, he has animals, he has food, he has gold, he has silver. All looks incredibly good from a worldly perspective. But if you miss these little statements, it looks so good, right? Then Solomon does something huge and noteworthy. He sponsors and oversees and constructs a temple in Jerusalem. First Kings 6-8 shows the blueprints, the layout, the description of this amazing temple, an ornate temple. I mean, it's over the top, it's incredible. He had 70,000 carriers, and 80,000 stone cutters, and 3,300 foremen just for the blocks of the foundation of the temple. It had cedar, it had gold, it had juniper, it had olive wood, it was incredible. He made two extra giant cherubim to overshadow the two that were already on top of the ark. That was my symbol for cherubim, that's right. I don't know why that was my for terrible. And it was a great space. At the conclusion of the building, it says on the screen that he had spent seven years building it. Seven years building but right after that verse, then it says, it took Solomon 13 years, however, to complete the construction of his palace. Hmm. Right? And if you had to do that number, like, hmm, what's the Bible writer trying to say here? How are you supposed to take those two statements being right next to each other? Is this just a statement of fact, not judgment? Or is it a subtle critique? What do you guys think? Maybe, I'm not going to say anything. I'm just wondering what you thought. Solomon builds this massive palace for him and for the Pharaoh's daughters. He then furnishes the temple, 1 Kings 7 and 8, and dedicates the entire place. And God seems happy with it all because his presence fills the place. So maybe it's possible that slavery and marriage to Pharaoh's daughter weren't that big a deal. Maybe it's possible that that God didn't care he spent 13 years on his palace and 7 years on his temple. But then 1 Kings 9, Solomon has another visionary dream. God warns him to offer full allegiance and not to follow after the gods of the neighboring people. Otherwise, 1 Kings 9, 8 says, this temple will become a heap of rubble. What's the point of this temple if you're not following me? What's the point of this beautiful ornate temple if we're not in relationship? It may become rubble. And so the rest of chapters nine and 10 shows a radical list of Solomon's splendor. We're told about the enormous amounts of gold that are being brought in. We see the story of Queen Sheba who traveled just to witness Solomon's wealth and wisdom. She brought great gifts with her. Solomon has gold, he has ivory, he has spices, he has horses, he has animals, he has ships. He has so much more. He's the envy of every ruler in that region. He has everything and then some. You know, he's, he's Bill Gates plus Elon Musk plus Bezos combined. You know, he's got it all. And he's showing it off. And he gets it more every day. He talks about literally how shipfuls of gold shields come in from Egypt every day. He's loaded. He reached the peak of worldly human success. And stop right here. Isn't that what wisdom should lead us to, right? We should admire him, correct? We should ask God to be wise, then make good decisions, and then we should get everything we want. Isn't that the takeaway from the story of Solomon, right? Is that if we make good, smart, wise decisions, right, then we'll get everything we want. We'll get all the gold and all the money and all the success in the world, yes? No. Please hear that, (laughs) No, it's not. Now, I'm sorry for those of you who have been taught to think that way. There are those in this world that like to teach and act like if you just follow God and make good decisions, then all will be great for you, and this life, you'll just skip through it, and everything will go merry, and you'll get all that you ask for, all that you want. It's just yours. And that's been taught before in churches and from pulpits. It's been taught that if you just follow God and you make good decisions, that everything is peaceful and nice and nothing bad ever happens to you. Now, there is some truth in that making good, wise decisions often lead to good results. That's true. That's generally true. But that's not always the case. And following after God doesn't mean that life will be easy and that you'll get all that you want and ask for. Following after God doesn't mean that every morning you wake up and everything is cheery and sunshiny and everything you ever asked happens. It doesn't mean that you will not suffer and that you will not hurt. Hear me very well on this. It just means that when you follow after God, that you'll get the best reward. You'll get what you were made for, and it's better than anything else. You'll get God. Seeking after Him, following after God doesn't promise easy street. Doesn't. It's not an automatic easy button that you can press. You like that older reference? Yeah, that's the old school reference now. Like it used to not be an old school reference, but that's the old school reference now. It promises relationship with a loving creator that gives himself and that is what our hearts most long for. Guys, can I say this over and over again? Here at Waypoint Church, you'll never, ever, ever, ever hear me preach that if you just have faith in Jesus, everything is going to be great. If you just have faith in Jesus, you'll never suffer. If you have just faith and believe hard enough, you'll never have cancer. You'll never hear me say that. But you will hear me say this, that if you have faith in Jesus, you'll get the greatest reward, and that's God himself. And that when you do get cancer and you do lose the ones you love and you do hurt and you face all the times that you face of suffering in this world, he will be with you. And that one day, one day, every tear will be dried up. And one day, all that is wrong will be made new. Until that day comes, we get to be the very instruments of this world being made new. That is what we'll hear preached here from this pulpit. So please don't think that just because you have the wisdom of Solomon and the world, all the worldly wisdom in the world, that you'll get whatever you want. That's not the message of this story. Sorry for that kind of little tangent. I just had to take it real quick. Back to Solomon. We read Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 17. And it says this: When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, and have taken possession of it and settled in it, and you say, Let us set a king over us like all the other nations around us. God knew what was going to happen, right? He said, you're going to go to this land, you're going to ask for a king like everybody else. That's exactly what they did. He said, be sure to appoint over you a king that the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among your fellow Israelites. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not an Israelite. In other words, don't place someone who doesn't know the Lord. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to give more of them. For the Lord has told you you are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives or his heart will be let destroy. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. These are instructions to when the future king comes, when they take into this land. And it's interesting to know that Solomon pretty much broke every detail of this law. Right? Every one of them. Now you can see why the biblical author of Kings went into all that detail. Solomon was a mixed character. He did wonderful things, but he also did bad things. In chapter 11 we see Solomon loved many many women. He way too many. He had hundreds hundreds of marriages it says 700 marriages. That's a lot. I'm just saying, that's a lot. Now for those of you who read the scriptures and you're thinking Solomon was successful, Solomon had gold, he seemed like he's doing good, it's okay to have many wives. No. Bad interpretation of scripture. Bad. Don't do that. It is not a good thing. He did it, but it's not saying that it was a good thing. Hear me very well. There are times in the Bible characters will do bad things. Doesn't mean it's good. Okay? Like David, we saw, he did a bad thing. Not good. Don't copy David. Solomon, bad thing. Don't copy. Good. Are we good so far? Just want to make sure this is established firmly. Bad thing. No. But he did, he had many wives. And he turned away, his heart grew more and more callous in Hawaii. And he, in 1 Kings eleven four it says, As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods. And his heart was not even fully devoted to the Lord. Some, Solomon even built altars and places of worship for these other gods. What a sad state. What a sad story. All that wealth, power, esteem, and abundance looked like a set of divine blessing. Looks very different now, doesn't it? It looks like a slow, sad story of a slow compromise leading to disaster. Same old story, same old song and dance, Saul failed because of his insecurity and fear. David has moral failures and sins, and now Solomon. As you go on in our series, you'll see that the kings of Israel follow in the footsteps of that failure. And that divine warning about the glorious temple turning into rubble, guess what? It happens. Spoiler alert, in case you didn't know. It does. The temple turns into rubble. Solomon had everything going for him. He was wise. His kingdom was expanding. He chose to build a temple. He had armies. He had everything. He had it all. His decisions early seemed good and not ill-attended. But slowly, as he compromised more and more with seeming little things, his heart became insensitive. As a result, his great wisdom that was once a divine gift became an instrument of self-service. What can we learn? What can we glean from Solomon's story? Number one, it's often compromising the little that lead to the big. Do you guys hear that? It's often compromising the little that lead to the big. You saw it first as the little thing for him might have been, well, other cultures, other countries, other kings, other rulers, they all take wives. I should take more than one wife. Right? Other people do it. Other nations do it. And I'm a powerful king. I can afford it. You guys know, remember wives cost money back then. So I can't afford it. It's a little compromise. He said, well, let me just start getting one extra wife. Let me get another extra wife. Let me get more, let me get more, let me get more. His compromising led to the big. His slaves forced labor. He might have thought good intentioned. Well, I gotta build this temple for God. So let me compromise. God wants a temple, let me use forced labor to make it happen. He did wrong for a good reason. Whatever the reason may be, he took the easy way. He took the, the simpler way to make something happen. His palace, well, I mean, God would want me to live in a nice place. I made him a nice home. Let me have an even nicer home. Let me spend some more time on it. That's not that big a deal. I can afford it. Look how much money I have. Isn't the little compromises that lead to a heart that is so turned and far away and calloused from God? His wife's worship. Oh, I mean, happy home, happy wife, happy life. And if I want my wives happy, well, let them have these places to worship their foreign god. Let them have places to worship these other deities, their professed rulers and ancient tribal shaman, whatever it may be. Let's just give them what they need, happy home. So me compromise. I'm not doing it, so let them do it. Right? So let's set up high places to worship. As a matter of fact, the high places that were dedicated to God, let's just turn those into, because God has a temple now, let's just turn those into places where they can worship other gods. You see what he's doing? When you compromise within the little for not thinking that it is a big deal? What do you compromise in the little? What do you compromise in the little thinking that it might not be a big deal or your motive might be correct, you still compromise it? Do you hear me? Can I tell you something, as a, as a business owner, that's an easy thing to do at times? Do you hear what I'm saying? Let me give you a, a silly example one day. This is a silly example for me. This is not, when I was in college, I had something called a Gator ID. You guys know what that is? It's like a UF student ID. That's how that's we buy student discounts at places, okay? When I was 25, I still had my Gator student ID. <laughs> every time I went to Gainesville, I was no longer a student, I was not being a student three years before then, but when I went to that movie theater, I'm like, student price, please, let me in. I'll get that student discount, please. Now guys, here please hear me very well. I am not casting judgment upon you. You do your thing. I am saying this for me. I had a friend come up to me and said, hey, you, you're, you're a student? No, he knew I wasn't. <laughs> Jerk. But, um, <laughs> I was like, no, no, I'm not a student. He goes, how come you told that lady you're a student and you got the student ID? And I was like, um, because I saved three dollars. And he goes, oh, so that's how much your integrity cost. And I said, uh, uh gosh, I don't like you. <laughs> Never like that friend. We're not friends anymore. I'm just kidding. I'm not casting judgment. Please hear me very well. But here's what I've come to see in my own life. When I'm not faithful with the little, it's easier to not be faithful with the big. Can I tell you that? When I'm easier to justify little things, it's easier to justify bigger things. It happens. this is a warning from King Solomon to you. Be faithful with the little. I think I heard Jesus say something like those lines too, right? Be faithful with a little. Number two, be aware of your own dark side. Know your own character flaws. Solomon had an ego. Can we just be real about this? Solomon had an ego. Give me all the wives. Let me get a massive temple. Give me all the gold. Let me expand and expand. Let me be the one that builds the temple. Solomon had an ego. And he turned what was a God-given, beautiful gift of wisdom and discernment, and he used it for his own personal gain, his own dark side, his own character flaws. My people, we all have—we're all sinners. Every one of us, and every one of you, myself included. This is a huge spotlight on me. I have flaws. My wife's like, "Mm-hmm." No, she's like, "She's done." I do. I have so many. And only when I'm aware of them, only when I know them can I be like, okay, I need to work on not turning what God's gift that he's given me into letting it benefit my own character flaws. Guys, I'm just going to be honest and real with you guys. Before I preach every single Sunday morning. There's a few prayers that I pray, not because it's a magic incantation, not because I think I, when I pray, it, I have more spiritual power, but there's a prayer that I pray that I need to center my heart in these three prayers. It's number one, God, Holy Spirit, make me a broken vessel. Let you be the one who speaks through me. Number two, I pray that Jesus be the vine, let me be the branch so fruit can be born. And number three, Jesus, be more, let me be less. And I say those prayers because, to be honest with you, a character flaw of mine is I want everybody to like me and I want everybody to be like, oh, look how awesome Lawrence is, good job. I, 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 I have to remind myself that this is not for me. I'm just gonna be real and honest with you guys. I know that flaw exists in me. I wanna be like, good job, I want you to come up to me and be like, good job, Lawrence, I moved my, I cried. I laughed, cried, I did it all. It was, and my heart yearns for that. My esteem yearns for that. That's a flaw I know is in me. That's why I need God to move mightily in this way. I'm aware of it, and when I'm aware of it now, then I can start battling it, be prepared to attack it, make the faithful decisions to go against it. Does that make sense, you guys with me so far? You need to be aware of your own dark side, know your own character flaws. Also, so that others can help you with it. And you know what Solomon needed? He needed a Nathan. Am I right? What did David had? David had a Nathan come up to him, tell him this story about, about this other guy, taking, the rich guy taking the poor guy's stuff. And David was like, no. But you know what? David made the choice to allow Nathan to speak into him. Am I right? He listened to Nathan. Solomon didn't have anybody do that to him. And he needed it. My people, you're not doing this thing alone. You all have flaws. You all have issues that you might not even be aware of. You need people to speak into you. And be okay and safe enough for them to even bring up issues that you may have. And it might hurt. Honestly, sometimes it will hurt. But it would be Healing. And it'll stop you from going further than you need to go. If somebody came up to Solomon and said, Solomon, yo, Saul, or Solo, or whatever they wanted to call him from the show, Solo, you know, Han Solo. He should be called King Solo. Okay, either way. And he said, what are you doing, man? What are you doing? This is everything contrary to Deuteronomy. Remember the promise you made David on his deathbed. What are you doing? Maybe Solomon would have been like, you're right. You're right. Please help me with this. Guys, can I tell you, we need each other. You need your small group. You need your accountability. You need your friends. You need your mentors. You need your pastors. You need your everybody. We all need each other to say, hey, what are you doing? Are you aware of this? Be faithful a little. I know you better. That's not what your heart meant. Come on, let's walk in this together. Are you with me? And number three. The lesson we can learn from Solomon is this, no king can ever save but the one true king. No king can ever save but the one true king. All human efforts fail, even the wisest one. Even the one who can accumulate more wealth and gold and expand his kingdom and have more horses and more chariots, even the wisest one, he still fails. All human efforts fail, even the wisest one. Jesus is a true wisdom that makes the world's wisdom seem foolish. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, And that we just think God is stronger than human strength. We need a wiser king than Solomon. We need a greater king, and that's the one that came. And his name is Jesus. And his wisdom did not lead to accumulated wealth. His kingship did not look like gathering chariots and horses and armies to battle. It looked like sacrificial love of serving one another and then dying upon the cross. Foolishness in the world's eyes. But the wisdom of God leads to salvation. Foolishness. And the world can mock it and say, that's the king you serve? One who was struck down and killed and nailed to a cross. And we say, yes, that's the king we serve. The king we need. The king we were made for. The one whose very act seems like foolishness, but it is the wisest act the world has ever seen. He's the very wisdom of God, and he is our king. And he is who saves us. All the wisdom of the world fails. Only in Christ do we see the king we need, and we choose to follow that king. My people, you'll see over and over again as we go through the rest of the book of 1 and 2 Kings, you'll see the same theme. These kings fail, but we have a true and perfect king. His name is Jesus, and so the confidence we stand is that our king rules and reigns. He accomplishes everything we need for salvation. Do you know this king? Do you know this wisdom? Will you embrace this wisdom? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, God, we thank you for the true wise king for the true one who not only had wisdom but used it to accomplish what wisdom was meant to do, to glorify you, to accomplish your will, and to advance your kingdom the way it was meant to be advanced. So we thank you for the work of Jesus. And through his love and through his grace, may we now have the power to not compromise in the little. May we be aware of our own issues and our own dark sides. May we know our own character flaws. And may we serve the one and true, one true king. This is in His name that we pray. Amen.